Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. And I am Boris Karpa, and we have with us today Arthur Glaxon, who is the author of Bloody Verrier, the SS Panzer Corps Defense of the Verrier's Bourgeois Ridges. It's quite quite a mouthful of a title, I, I must say. And perhaps we're happy to have you here, Arthur. Oh yes, I'm. I'm very. I'm very uh, thankful for you to to have me on. And uh, yes, it's uh, it's quite a long title for the book, Bloody Verriers: The First SS Panzer Corps Defense of the Verriers Burgibus Ridges. And this is it's got this subtitle, Volume One. Operations Goodwood and Atlantic, eighteen to twenty-two July, because I'm 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 currently writing the the second volume, which will come out hopefully next Christmas. And at that time, we will hopefully have you here again, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. But you know, this show is a bit like the village of Manitevka in Fiddler on the Roof. A tradition is very important to us. And so I'm going to start with a traditional question, which we always ask all our authors is, can you tell us why you chose this particular subject, this particular place and time for your book? Um, I've always been very, very interested in the German land forces in Normandy. I did my PhD um, dissertation on the Canadian army. And, and as I was going through secondary sources, so the accounts of the fighting in Normandy, I noticed it was very, very broad brush. There's a complete lack of detail on the Germans, um, how they how they fought, their doctrine, how they were led, how they organized themselves, uh, what were their strengths, were their failures, um, w- w- what were they trying to do in Normandy, uh, what was their you know, their direction and how did that direction from higher actually transform into the fighting at the tactical level versus the the strategic concerns. And, uh, you know, having read, you know, like many of the the listeners today, hundreds of, you know, German tank books, I always thought, you know what, I know the kind of book I'd like to write. And I I set out to write it, one that uh, gives critical analysis of the events, as well as puts in a huge amount of, or what I think is a huge amount of detail. It was so much that they decided to break this up into two volumes uh, from Casemate, that's the publisher for Bloody Verriers. This, and this breaking it up into two volumes allows me to punch in the, the super, super detail. You know, the first, this book, it goes from the 18th to the 22nd, and it covers operations Goodwood in Atlantic, but I can I can really dig into it uh, given the the page count for the the first book, and um, um, I believe this is one of the most detailed books on the Germans in Normandy to to be written to this point. So I'm I am I'm happy with it, and uh, and I'm looking forward to to doing it some more here. 
Now, many people who are listening to our show are themselves writers, researchers, working perhaps on their own books, on their own assignments perhaps, or studies. In any event, they are writers, and so we always try to get our writers to share some of their experience, some of their insights on what it is to to write a book. And so my second question is, what were the difficulties you encountered when you were writing your book, and how did you overcome these difficulties? Um, The first one, what's the the subject matter? Um, the, The German primary documents exist in great detail and they're very, very plentiful and accessible to, to, you know, there's, there's several companies in the United States that actually sell archival material on the German military machine in the second world war. But there's a terrible problem. It stops in the fall of 1943. And of course, as many of the, the listeners know, at the end of the war, the Germans did a very good job of burning virtually anything they could get their, their hands upon. Um, and so a lot of the primary documents for this battle, some have survived, which I've made as much of use of as I can, such as the, the Panzer Group or the, the Armored Group West War Diary and all the appendixes that come with it. But for, for other you know, key events that you, know, you, you certainly have, American records and Canadian records and British records and, and firsthand accounts, you know, they've all been recorded properly and very, very accessible, very much organized. You know, um, you know the, the, the researchers um, and authors, military historians on uh, British, American, and Canadian subjects in, in Normandy, they, they do an excellent job because all this resources is there. And it's forced me actually to, for some certain events, to, to look at the Canadian war diaries and the Canadian accounts uh, because in the British accounts, you know, because the, the, the first SS Panzer Corps, the, the armored corps of two divisions, which is fighting the British Second Army, that's the, the uh, subject of this book. Um, a lot of times the key people did not survive the war. And of course, all these records for, for the, you know, the Waffen SS, which is the, the armed military arm of the, the, the Nazi party through which many units are figured prominently into this book in its battle with the British Second Army in the eastern side of the Normandy Bridgehead, the, you know, facing the Canadians and the, the British. Um, they had a castle in Bohemia, Moravia at the end of the war, which was an archive for all the, the war diaries, primary documents, records, everything. Of course, so the Germans all very, very meticulous. And this, of course, went up in smoke in, in April and May 1945. It's, um, so it, it certainly crimps the researchers' uh, his efforts. Uh, so I've had to lean heavily on the uh, Canadian accounts and other accounts to fill in the holes somewhat. And then there is the problem of the German language. Is my German perfect? Well, no. Is it getting better? Yes. Uh, but at the same times, you know, checking things over, checking the translation, looking at it, looking at it again. Uh, to sort of a funny story, um, one of the next door neighbors, their 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 mother comes to visit occasionally, and I even visited over at their house. Uh, she's German. She was born on a, or married a Canadian serviceman who came back to Canada. But we we looked at the primary documents together, and um, you know, for some words or some some. Um, 
various expressions. She she certainly helped me out a great deal. Of course, you know uh, these things practice takes time, and of course, um, learning other languages it's it's a constant it's a constant battle. But um, you just have to keep on going. And then there is the the problem of the German military itself, and the fact that they lost the war in a series of apocalyptic battles in the, the, the to to in the 1944 1945 period. Many of the key participants that I chronicle within within this book, the protagonists, they were killed killed in either the Ardennes in Normandy or the final fighting in Hungary, in other places, um, or during the some of the actual battles that I that I talk about in the book. Um, so those, you know, the, the, the perspective of those commanders is, is gone. Of course, you have to um, lean on other sources. Uh, sometimes there's German official histories made of certain units by certain veterans organizations that, you know, put uh, a spin on things that, you know, is a little bit positive, too positive. And as the historian, you know, many of you, uh, you know, if you heard this, uh, it's a common saying of military historians, there's what this group says, and then there's what this group says, but the, the truth lies somewhere in between. And of course, I had to be very, very careful in this book um, to approach it as, as to not have it come off or to, to be in any way, shape or form an apology for an explanation for or some kind of supportive propaganda style thing for the the military forces of the the third reich and you know the the, the waffen ss the armed military wing of the nazi party and the greater does here the 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 regular army of the greater germany and and certainly you know i've, I've gone to great pains to 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 um to, to make sure that that wasn't the case, as many of the protagonists and main characters within this book, they go on to war crimes trials at the end of the war. They are war criminals. So to, to, to examine their activities, but not to portray them as heroes in any way, shape, or form, to more uh, provide a critical analysis. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. You know, for example, Josen Piper, one of the the, 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 the reg, Panzer Regiment commanders featured in this book, you know, he's very much a war criminal due to some prisoner executions in the Ardennes, some war crimes, as well as uh, some others from uh, the Hitler Jugend Division. They executed a, a lar- very large number of uh, Canadian soldiers in June 1944. And they, there's prominent war crimes trials at the war's end for, for that group as well. And this is just not... not um, not to to ignore the the activities of other Waffen SS divisions such as Das Reich that executes a great number of French civilians in order of Serglane, or the Liebstandata SS Panzer Division that also kills a large number of civilians within the Ukraine in 1943. Um, so yes, and then there's last but not least. There's the addition of last-minute details or some kind of information that comes to me as an author just as the book is about to be published or it forces a map to be changed because that piece of information, because you'd want everything as right or as it right as it can be, but, you know, you're you're up against the challenge of often conflicting accounts or, you know, certain pieces of information not being found in time for the publication of a certain book. So, yes, that's that's about those are the main mean challenges, but uh, it's it's certainly been a learning experience writing this book. So I'm going to take what you've just said and take it to a slightly different direction. You've talked about the Waffen-SS, who, of course, were 
guilty of a number of war crimes, but in this book we're focusing on their military performance. We're, we're specifically talking about these several days. Oh yes, very Ju- much so. July 18th through 22nd. And so can you tell us in brief about just their military, the military performance of the Germans in this area? Why is it so important to us to learn about these several days? What were these German soldiers fighting like, if you will? Yes, um, uh, there's a German defensive front set up south and to the west of the uh, city of Khan, which had fallen in early July. And um, the Germans were convinced, absolutely convinced, that uh, the main Allied effort would come from the British Army, from the Canadians' units there, and the British Second Army, and what would eventually become the the First Canadian Army. Um, They were... Very, you know, they 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 believed, you know, what was happening against the Americans in the American First Army under Bradley, that that what is somewhat containable. It wasn't a problem. There are very good defensive efforts going on in the Bocage country, which, of course, you know, the little parceled out fields with the the areas of brows of earth, and it's not really good areas for tanks for tanks. And the Americans were being contained and slowed down. It wasn't really a problem. But south of Khan. That was the danger area, the perfect tank country of both um, west of the Orne River, the Hill 113, Hill 112. Then to the the east of the Orne, there's the Verrieres Ridge, giant, huge, not a huge ridge, but very significant. You can see for miles and miles, as well as to the east of that, the Borgibus Ridges. Of course, uh, hills, very, very important because that's where you can adjust artillery fire from and you can dominate the landscape by having military possession of these hills. So these these three areas, Hill 113, 112, uh, the Verriers Ridge, the Borgibus Ridge, and the perfect tank country, Flat farmers' fields, um, wheat fields high, and you know, the, the the very much rolling hills, but at the same time excellent for tanks. No real major obstacles, and the Germans thought this would be a second Battle of El Alamein for the that would eventually break through, just like the Germans had uh, been faced in uh, in uh, North Africa and Montgomery again would would attempt that same battle using artillery to to batter his way forward and eventually through attrition to 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 fight and smash his way through and the Germans were very very determined to not let that happen a second time so for the majority of their Panzer divisions heavy tank battalions the best infantry formations they all became deployed upon these high features on which if the Germans or or the the Canadians or British uh, got possession of them, somehow the entire defensive uh, network south of Caen, south of the city of Caen, would become undone and the Germans would have to retreat to the south and potentially to the east, where this would leave the Seventh Army, you know, uh, fighting the Americans in the west if the the British and Canadians uh, broke through, they potentially would be cut off in the Cotonou Peninsula or the Cotonou area. So the area south of Khan was the primary focus, the absolute primary focus. Um, and we see a massive deployment of forces there. And this allows the Germans in some areas to become 
peer enemies to 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 have the same or you know nearly the same resources in this tiny little area much to the detriment of the 7th army to the west so panzer group west which is an army level formation is getting everything all the fuel all the tanks all the good tank divisions all the best infantry and the 7th army is very much the 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 poorer cousin who's getting the less fuel less less uh, materials less good infantry less resources to fight the american first army under bradley which eventually breaks through in operation cobra um but um this book here is about Operation Goodwood, the, the British attempt to smash their way through with three armored divisions stacked on top of each other. And the, the, the doppelganger or, or twin operation, Operation Atlantic, put forward by the Canadian Second Corps to advance on the, the, the flank of the British armored charge through this perfect tank ground. Um, it's also... You know, lesser known, very much lesser known, but also very dynamic. And to top it all off, to allow the British to break through in this, this attack on the 18th of J July, the greatest tank battle ever fought by the British Army, a huge bombing raid by the RAF, the United States Army Air Force, is, is, is set to absolutely level the, the Germans and destroy them in their, their in the open, destroy their tanks, um, destroy all their positions, destroy villages, absolutely level everything for the use of massive firepower to allow the tank divisions that are stacked up one on top of each other, um, sort of like infantrymen going through a hole in the barbed wire to, to charge out and then to shake out to allow them to advance to the south, affecting Though, though Montgomery will deny it after the war, a breakout to the south, to the, the city of Falaise. So yes, that's what why the, the, the area is so very, very important. And one of the defensive units or formations uh, holding two divisions, which will eventually get much more resources pumped into it, is the 1st SS Panzer Corps, which is... Um, which is, uh, which is deployed south of Caen to, to fight off these these uh, these attacks, and in, right next to it is the 84th Army Corps, which suffers the brunt of the bombing of uh, of Goodwood. So, the one question, which you know, and I apologize for this, but we, whenever we talk about uh, military history, of course, there is. To one of the things which often comes up is the modern relevance, and in this case, I'd like to talk about something which is currently uh, comes up a lot in military theory books: is the issue of staff work and staff organization. And of course, the Germans famously were always very good at this. So, can you tell us about how the staff of uh, um, uh, the, uh, how the uh, SS headquarters was organized, how their staff work was done during this battle. Oh, certainly. Um, the, this is a large focus of the book and something that had been missing. I believe it it scared military historians a little bit. And a lot of military historians, of course, while being you know excellent historians, they weren't army officers and they don't don't um, know of some of these methods and what actually goes on in the headquarters and the procedures. And for the people that, you know, listening may, who are interested in this subject, um, this book, I, I was very much uh, taken by Douglas Nash's From the Realm of a Dying Sun books, which talks about a German tank corps and the fighting outside Warsaw. 
And this is something I very, very much wanted to do, but in Normandy to examine the, the first SS Panzer Corps headquarters and, and how it was led. So, yes, um, I'll just talk about the whole headquarters itself, all the staff officers doing their jobs in the main, the main big gears as they turn and to give the readers uh, an understanding of it. Um, of course, it all centers around the commander. In this case, he's, uh, you know, got this, this very long-winded, um, uh, you know, Waffen-SS rank. You know, it's the political army of the Nazi party. The Obergruppenführer, the Panzer, the, the Panzer General, der Waffen-SS, Sepp Dietrich, and he's the corps commander with the equivalent of uh, the, the lieutenant, or lieutenant general rank as a corps commander. Um, and underneath him, you know, in the, the headquarters, he'd have his chief of staff, which is, you know, he's got another SS rank, you know, but he is as a senior colonel, uh, Fritz Kramer, who's his trusted right-hand man within and who sort of ran the headquarters. And of course, Dietrich would have his set patron every day, get up, um, you know, visit with the various units on the front line, come back for various conferences that he had to go to, talk on the phone for a tremendous amount with the higher command, as well as uh, be briefed on situations dealing with resources, with um, number of troops involved, about enemy movements, about a potential attack they are taking part in. But he had a very, very busy schedule. And of course, he had an aide-de-camp that took and sent personal messages for him and drove him around. And of course, he had a large bodyguard and he'd travel around sometimes away from the brigade or the, from the, the Panzer Corps, Armored Corps headquarters and leaving it all in the hands of Fritz Kramer, who was, who was the chief of staff who ran everything, ran things with an iron fist, is a very dynamic leader. And so what was Fritz Kramer actually running within the headquarters? There was three parts to it. The, the sort of command and operations uh, section, which is the Führung Abtilung, you know, the, the, is the rough translation of that. And within this, there was uh, an officer called the, the 1A, which was had a major rank in this. For this particular headquarters is Eric Grensling. He's the major. Um, you know, he's the, and the, these were all trained staff officers. They went to the, the staff college war courses in Berlin, uh, which was very, very difficult for the, the Waffen-SS because the army, the regular German army, looked down upon them. And so within these headquarters, there's very few actual qualified Waffen-SS officers. Uh, so a lot of army officers had to be uh, posted in to carry out these duties because they're only ones qualified or educated or experienced to do them, to, to create, to, to control as staff officers, which are the, the elite of, of the officer corps uh, within the German military. So within this Führung Abtelung, this command and control part, they planned all the operations. Uh, they had the 1A, who's the, the operations officer, uh, Major Grenzling, the, the, the general stabs officer, uh, grade four, who is the transport officer, very important as well as the intelligence officer, who is another major um, who would um, deal with, with um, you know, how are the units traveling around, what routes they will take, where they have to be at certain times. And they'd fight the battle. And interacting with them as they're planning their battle, the, this Panzer Corps battle, this Armored Corps battle, of course, there's two or three divisions under control of this Corps headquarters. 
There would be the artillery commander, who is somewhat independent, but subordinate to the, the, the corps commander. And he's the German term for it is Arco, which is artillery commander. And is this fellow Brigadier, Brigadier, Brigadenfuhrer, the Waffen-SS rank, Walter Staudinger. Staudinger. Um, mispronouncing his name there, but, but he controlled all the artillery in the core area and had to synchronize the artillery. Very, very difficult to do to, to add the artillery support to whatever operations the infantry, armored, or attached engineering units were carrying out in the field of battle. Of course, the chief of staff would oversee this and assign, you know, Fritz Kramer, he'd assign a task matrix for every division, what they had to do, when they had to do it. Because, of course, the, the main role of a panzer corps was organizing its units from getting to A to B. And then once they've got there from doing whatever tasks they needed to do. So uh, he very much supervised the routes and, and plan the core battle, what the, 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 the actual fighting units, the divisions in the front line, what, what the, who would they actually fight or attack or defend against. Um. So, so that's the first part, the first area. The second part was also very, very important. And the chief of staff would be very much interested in this, the activities of this ch chunk. This is the Quartermeister Abtilung. And he's uh, commanded by a, a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel. Uh, Walter Ewart was his name in Normandy. And he dealt with all the resources, all the um, consumable ammunition, fuel, um, certain equipment levels, new trucks, uh, how much tanks they're getting, whether they need new tanks, new machine guns, any type of uh, rocket artillery ammunition, all of that, all of those things that this armored corps just chewed through at a tremendous rate. And last but not least, there's the adjuncteur, which is the personnel section of the headquarters. This would be a, a staff officer of the 2A grade, also a lieutenant colonel, but very, very trusted because he was uh, responsible for all personnel decisions, getting reinforcements, uh, the, the handing out of medals, promotions, and in some cases, demotions. And, and, and uh, this is, would be a very, very challenging uh, area because the Germans, as many of the readers know, they weren't being properly reinforced with, with new personnel or new tanks or enough artillery rounds. All their resources in the way of people, equipment, were being starved of them. So the, the Quartermeister Abtilung and the Adjuncture, the personnel and the, you know, the, the logistics areas were in very much a difficult situation. Of course, plugged into these main three chunks was the Nacht Richten Abtilung, which is the signals, signals intelligence, as well as, you know, the, the radios, all the telephone networks, they'd be deployed and they had to maintain and keep these communications networks running because of course the, the net, the, the, the headquarters would be absolutely useless without any type of um, communications capability. And also attached to them, with, to the headquarters itself was a, a large escort company, you know, fighting troops. Should there any enemy breakthroughs take place, uh, anti-aircraft units, and there'd be special core units that could be they were assets that could be deployed to the front divisions uh, to support them in some sort of large effort. And these were artillery units, and there was a heavy tank battalion with the famous Tiger tanks. So. 
uh, it was very much a constant moving machine that that never never closed down. It's a twenty four seven operation, and all of the personalities that I've described here, they all had uh, sort of you know second in commands, you know um, you know flunkies that would do the job during the nighttime and take the night shift. Well, they weren't flunkies, but they um, they they would carry out the night shift to answer the phones. Uh, take down write important reports um, that would you know they'd switch over as soon as the 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 main commanders woke up in the morning as well as Dietrich woke up in the morning as well as the chief of staff woke up in the morning and then they'd continue the battle just as they had the day before and then at a certain point in the night um, say you know 10 o'clock or midnight or something like that everyone would go to bed and they'd wake up at say six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning it was very physically demanding even though it was somewhat you know, isolated from the front lines. It was a very high stress environment, but would have its same demands every, every day. And given the German military situation in Normandy, in the, 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 the event of a crisis, of course, it would be working full, full tilt to try to stop the allies and stop their, their massive attacks, which um, eventually uh, spell doom for the Germans because they aren't capable of coping with a massive U.S. effort and a massive British effort. And when these two massive efforts eventually happen simultaneously on the 25th of July, COBRA happens, the system breaks down, and the Germans are overwhelmed in the West. And eventually, Bradley breaks through and unleashes Patton. And the rest is history. The Germans have to you know, quickly evacuate the majority of France. But yes, so... Uh, Hopefully that can give uh, an idea of how a headquarters work and these officers that were performing at the, the utmost uh, range of their capabilities as the elite of the German military due to their brain power and the, 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 the certain Waffen-SS types that managed to go through the army staff courses in Berlin um, were, of course, um, very much engaged heavily to, to do this. Of course, the Germans at this time wanting to establish two armies, one of them, the, the, the Nazi army of the Waffen-SS, the military arm of the Third Reich, and then it's Nazi Socialist Party, as well as there's the German regular army, and both are fighting for resources with each other. And of course, the army sometimes doesn't help out the Waffen-SS as much as they demanded. Um, and due to the lack of experience at this higher level, sometimes poor staff work did occur as well as, you know, often they were overwhelmed by impossible situations, not enough resources to do what the core commander um, said, I want this to happen. The ability of the headquarters, uh, you know, in its uh, management of resources tries to make that happen, of course, to make his will a reality. Uh, but often for the Germans, it, it's, they were overwhelmed and they were very much defeated due to these, these lack of resources. It wasn't for a lack of wanting to do certain things on the battlefield. Uh, the Americans, uh, British at times, outfought them. And as, as far as firepower goes and resources, very much were uh, superior in every way. Well, this takes me to something which... I've read about in your book and it broke stereotypes for me a bit. We're talking about the Hitler Jugend who were in this context we are talking about people who were drafted from their youth group service at the age of 17 or in some cases 16 and they are fighting as part of the as part of the SS 
the Virgin Hitler Jugend, in fact. And usually the stereotype about these people is that they were they had some degree of fanaticism, but that their training was uh, not not always the very best, and so sometimes uh, sometimes they were not the best. Uh, sometimes their discipline failed them. But here you in the book you tell me that they are they fought very you know competently and they were not worse than any other Nazi soldiers in that time and place. And so can you tell me more about the Hitler Jugend at Verriers, how they performed, how they fought, how they were organized? Yes. Um, the, 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 the 12th SS Panzer Division in June is very much inexperienced. It fights its first battles against the Canadian Army. Uh, it arrives on the 7th. Uh, they, they attempt to fight the officers who are veterans, but the entire cadre of the, 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 the brand new soldiers, uh, the various um, lower levels, rank levels, um, the Panzer Grenadiers and a lot of the, the armored crews, um, you know, they all have veteran tank commanders and veteran battalion commanders and veteran company commanders, but they're very much, they're not veteran infantry. They're, they're 19 and 20 years old, 18 years old sometimes, and they've just come from Germany and they're at times very poorly led um, as well as, you know, they, they make terrible decisions as far as how they treat prisoners of war. They, they murder quite a few of them. They perform badly um, at times where they need to, to, to coordinate their actions. They're very bad at coordinating them, um, uh, at affecting combined arms operations with tanks, artillery, and you know, engineers, and all the supporting arms for to, uh, working towards a common objective. They don't do that properly. They make a lot of mistakes in June, and the, 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 the Canadians manage to defeat them, gain the initiative, and defend the beachhead. And very tragically, during this time frame, um, many, many um, uh, Waffen-SS officers act in an undisciplined manner, in a murderous criminal manner that you know, kill many Canadian prisoners of war. Um, but this largely somewhat trails off by early July. And by the time mid-July comes, after they've been fighting for roughly a month and a half, they're very, very extremely experienced. They fought against the, the bridgehead battles. They fought against um, uh, the, the, the Operation Epsom. They fought against Operation Charnwood, which saw the northern part of Khan fell. But at the same time, They've largely been destroyed. The, the Panzer Grenadier infantry component of the division is, is annihilated. But what, what is left is very, very experienced. Uh, and uh, due to this high-level experience and the officers are now, uh, they've, they've been taken away from the Eastern Front. They're very much experienced on the Western Front. They know exactly how to act, what the limitations are, what the great powers of the Allies are. These, they're two main powers where the, the Allies are hugely superior. This is air superiority with the use of fighter bombers, as well as artillery. All field artillery is vastly, vastly superior to the Germans in every way, shape, and form. But the, the, the remnants of this division, now vastly reduced, it performs quite well. And it's been withdrawn from the front when Operation Goodwood the storm breaks on the Germans and it has to redeploy. Um, so it arrives and it manages to solidify the front, but it actually plays a minor role in this book. But the, the, the German soldiers that are, that are, that have survived are very, very experienced, very, you know, their, their level of leadership 
uh, has improved. They're operationally more effective, um, but they, their capability is very much diminished due to a lot of them. They're all dead. They're all being killed, wounded, or captured by this successive battles they were in since, since early June. And this is a terrible problem for the Germans. They're not receiving new reinforcements. So slowly but surely, the strong elite panzer divisions get whittled down to nothing. And um, luckily, they managed to scrape up enough resources to, to stop Operation Goodwood, the massive British three-armored division assault. But um, their, their capabilities are very much diminished in, in, in um, to, to comparison to how they were before, of course, the Allies attack on D-Day and invade the, the, uh, the area of the Calvados, Normandy. Um, so yes, this, this no reinforcements, artillery that never stops, the artillery bombardments, the Allies never stop. They're constantly, every German tank has to hide underneath a tree or become some, some kind of moving bush with camouflage because the fighter bombers are constantly cruising over, orbiting endlessly. And then there's no supplies. The artillery, the trucks can't get through with new shipments of artillery rounds, rocket artillery rounds, uh, new tank ammunition. Uh, new tanks can't come from Germany due to the railroad network being destroyed. Um, so it's, it's very much, uh, uh, the Germans are very limited to how they can actually affect the battlefield. Um, and, and they do not have the initiative due to the power of the Allies and their great amount of firepower that they can summon through their artillery and fighter-bomber assets. So hopefully that, that answers the question a little bit. That really helps a lot, but this, again, allows me to move on to my next question, which is, we, we've talked, uh, you've, you've just talked a bit about Allied superiority, and yet, and yet, of course, the title of the book is Bloody Verriers, and the casualties of the Allied forces at Verriers were very heavy. And so, uh, there were two Canadian regiments which had to be rotated from the front because of the heavy casualties which they took during these first four days. And so... Can you tell us, uh, you, you, you write in your books that there has been some controversy in terms of who is to blame for this. Do you think that it is some errors which uh, Canadian command may have made, or is it simply that the Germans were so well prepared to repel them that it made this inevitable in some sense? Um, it, it all comes down to a question of tanks and the use of tanks and how the, the German military viewed the use of their armored vehicles, their, their assault guns, their Sturmgeschultz, as well as their main battle tanks, the, the Panzers, and how they were employed and what sort of tanks were employed by the Allies. And, and um, it, was, it was very much an artillery war in Normandy. And there was very much a remnant of this mentality that it was strengthened in Italy by the, the British 8th Army fighting along General Mark Clark's, you know, with alongside his 5th Army um, in this terrible environment for tanks. And it became very much an infantry first operation, an infantry first doctrine supported by massive amounts of artillery. Massive amounts. And of course, with the fighter bombers thrown in as the perfect combination, and the Allies slowly but surely ground their way through 
through Italy. Now, we have a lot of these same commanders that are veterans of Italy uh, that, uh, you know, land in the Normandy battlefield, you know, after D-Day or during D-Day. And they, they attempt to fight as they did within Italy, very much to, to the surprise the Germans deploy a much greater amount of armored force against them. Armored force that isn't constantly present within the Italian boot uh, due to, you know, it's its rivers and its ravines and its hills and its mountains. You know, there's some good tank areas there, of course, but we don't see the massive German armor tactics and the viciousness of the armored assaults. The, it doesn't really happen to the same intensity as it, as it you know, as it did in, in Italy. Uh, the, the, the events in France, I should say, are much more intense in Normandy and large Despite the Germans being forced to operate in smaller groups, their attacks are very, very vicious. Of course, they can't mass like they do on the Eastern Front due to the threat of the fighter bombers. And um, But when the, the Allies do attack, they attack infantry first, infantry first in some cases. This the, the, the big exception to this is Operation Goodwood, when the British tanks come forward first. And I'll talk a little bit about that in, in just a second. But um, on the Western part with the Canadians, it's very much an infantry first with small little penny packets of tanks. And the Germans attack with this great uh, ferocity uh, using tanks, sometimes tanks just by themselves, small groups. But these these just cut swaths like a hot knife through butter. They And they inflict terrible casualties. And the Canadian army is very much Artillery dominated. The RCAs, the premier, the premier um, arm within the Canadian artillery, uh, within the Canadian army, uh, within their second corps. The majority of the officers commanding are either artillery officers and some of them are infantry officers. But the, rather than the tanks going forward first in a, in a massive thalnex to fight an armored battle, like you know the Battle of Kursk or the, as the British attempt to do in Operation Goodwood, um, it's infantry first. So, in the terrible things happen for Operation Atlantic. Uh, it begins to rain on the, um, the, the, the third day, the, the, the final day for Operation Atlantic. And this grounds the fighter bombers. The Germans see this and surge forward with the tanks at high speed. And of course, the artillery, uh, the, the RCA anti-tank guns that are attempted to, to set up to do an effect uh, uh, with the tank destroyers and anti-tank defense, um, are destroyed in some cases before they can set up. And the Germans sweep through in a very aggressive action. And so the Canadian army, in its in its uh, small use of tanks, its penny packeting of tanks, it, it attempts armored operations in Operation Atlantic with only two tank regiments. These are not often at full strength. And the Germans have this entire panzer division, the Liebstandata Adolf Hitler, which is the premier armored formation or one of the premier armored formations within the Third Reich and is, uh, you know, controlled by the 1st SS Panzer Corps, which directs it to stop the Canadians from capturing Verrier's Ridge and the Panzers surge in during this rainstorm and just savage the Canadian infantry. And this, this armored battle that needs to be fought and needs to be won it's fought by the Canadians in the West, beside this town of St. Andre Sorne and St. Martin, but in the center on Verrier's Ridge, um, the, the, the Panzers, to, to a certain extent, run wild. And so this armored battle that's suddenly surging and upon the Canadians, 
They have no idea how to fight, and it's a battle they never thought to fight, or they thought the anti-tank guns and the artillery would be able to deal with it. Then the, the infantry, in a very much a World War I type of fashion, would be able to bite and hold and fortify their positions. And the, the unfortunately, in some cases, the German panzers beat them to the punch before they can throw this huge amount of artillery firepower and anti-tank firepower upon the German panzers. They're all over them. And it's it's very tragic. And, of course, this takes us to the events to the east with Operation Goodwood. Um, as the British, very tragically, they stack up their armored divisions and only have enough space to put one armored brigade through at a time. So when the, they manage to get one armored brigade with two armored regiments about to attack Borjibus Ridge, and they have used this massive bombing to fight their way through, you know, one, two, and they come to a third defensive line on Borjibus Ridge, and everything's going just, just amazingly. They, they bombed the living daylights of the Germans with the aerial heavy bombers and turned Tiger tanks over, and now they're there with these two armored regiments, and they're ready to attack Borjibus Ridge and surge right over it. The Germans make a stand, a determined stand, and they launch their, their, their panzers right at, as they do a couple of days later, against the Canadians. They launch them against the British, and they, they fight their way through these series of two or three or four villages that are right at the foot of Borjibus Ridge, as well as there's a large number of German tanks and anti-tank guns on top of Borjibus Ridge, and they just destroy these two armored regiments. The further... The, 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 you're saying, well, there was two other armored divisions, weren't they? Um, the, the British can never concentrate the power. And they, once they see the amount of losses that are inflicted upon them, this, this greatest tank battle of the British army that to ever take place, you know, before or since, um, it, it's, they, they lose a huge amount of tanks within these two and a third tank regiment, effectively stopping them. And they revert on the second and third day of Goodwood to, the infantry first or armored battle group, you know, using overwhelming power to take little objectives like attacking this village or we'll attack that village and slowly but surely we'll, we'll fight our way onto Borjibus Ridge, but it never really happens. The Germans slowly but surely pull back to Borjibus Ridge, giving up the villages, but at a tremendous, tremendous cost. So at the end of Goodwood, the Germans are still on top of this hill, Borjibus Ridge, Staring down at the British, this giant mass of armor that doesn't want to do it again. It doesn't want to attack again. Some of the, the commanders openly refuse to attack the, the 22nd British Armored Brigade, the 7th British Armored Division, um, which is its parent organization, as well as some parts of the Guards Armored Division. Seeing what happened to the British 11th Armored Division, which is its... Um, its um, which we'll call it, uh, I'm forgetting the actual number of the, uh, I believe it's the 27th Armored Brigade, but I could be wrong there. Uh, uh, but um, the, seeing their huge losses, um, they refuse to push and they get canalized and cut or, or stopped in front of Borjibus Ridge. So it's the German aggressive use of, of armor and the inability to, to, to uh, by the British artillery to save the situation and the Canadian artillery to save the situation and really pound the Germans um, or have the proper amount of anti-tank guns under artillery control, both the Royal Artillery and the Royal Canadian Artillery, to really shoot up the German tanks. And this allows the, um, 
the first SS Panzer Division leaps and Data to jump into the hole that's been created by this massive bombing campaign to support Goodwood, which has overrun the 21st Panzer Division and has destroyed the 16th Luftwaffe Field Division and smashed their way through, effectively destroying both, to a large extent, both uh, organizations. Um, it saves the day for the Germans and, and, and they launch not one, but two massive at- armored assaults on uh, the 18th of July, effectively bringing this giant British armored Falnax to a halt or to, to change their tactics, forcing them to change their tactics in the next two days to be, you know, very much World War I style, bite and hold, limited objectives, limited operations supported by massive, massive amounts of artillery. And it's eventually they, they bogged down, they shut down Goodwood and uh, the Germans seeing that Goodwood is shut down. They think, oh, this is very, very good. And they transfer the armored assets to the West to attack the Canadians. And on the 20th and the 21st and on the 22nd, they launch a series of attacks on the Canadian uh, Second Corps, uh, causing huge, huge casualties. Sometimes the Germans fail. Sometimes they say success succeed. But at the end of the day, just like Borgibus Ridge, Verrier's Ridge remains in their hands. And that's part of the story that I wanted to tell with this book. So, as I've mentioned, some of our audience is, of course, interested in the history aspect, and others are interested more in, you know, in a a more, how can we apply this? What can we learn from this for um, uh, for few, for uh, our current training, for our current military doctrine, can, can you tell us what the lessons are, if there's any lessons at all, for this sort of thing? Yes, um, this something the United States military has not done for a while, as well as other European militaries, NATO militaries. They have not fought against a peer enemy one that has similar resources, similar experience, similar effective weapon systems, and of course is willing to use the weapon systems just as the NATO or Western militaries are to to kill massive amounts of soldiers, to destroy enemy units or attack them very, very aggressively. And with this peer enemy, the ability of of the various logistics branches and and for the, the, the core commanders to, to have those necessary uh, reinforcements, new tanks, new new mechanized armored fighting vehicles, new infantrymen, new artillery pieces, enough artillery to contain uh, to, to continue to fight the sustained battle as both sides batter away at each other. It is potentially something, something that's coming in the future. Um, and you know these these this pattern of little wars against you know uh, very enemies with limited limited resources that we can you know um, deal with yes overwhelm overwhelm at our leisure sometimes you know with massive advanced um, you know fighter jet bombers etc cetera, etc cetera. but that pure enemy that may attack you from the air or destroy or seek to destroy large numbers of your tanks or large numbers of your infantrymen with uh, sustained artillery fire or airstrikes or something to that effect. You know, very much uh, something that's missing 
or has is you know uh, an area that I don't believe our current militaries, Western militaries, are very strong at, is the planning for the massive reinforcements that might be needed, as well as the 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 anti aircraft assets to deal with a peer enemy that can chew through your your soldiers, your units at a rapid rapid pace, and this is something the Germans very much learn. In, in Normandy is the effect of this. The air assets and the artillery slowly but surely bleeds them dry. Then the new tanks and the new infantrymen don't get through. Of course, there's simultaneous you know, uh, crises occurring on the Eastern Front with Operation Bagraton uh, in, the, in the East around Warsaw at that time and on destroying Army Group Center. And the Germans, they just simply don't have enough resources to cope or to deploy um, massive resources to deal with the Allies and their their massive attacking operations that are killing their infantrymen, their their grenadiers and their Panzer grenadiers, and knocking out their tanks on a on a, on a rapid rapid basis. Which you know brings me to our conclusion. I mean to say, I was there. There is an important question which we always ask you know we all we, we've come full circle here we started with our some of our traditional questions and we would like to also conclude with one if you do not mind namely well this is a show about writing and about reading and so can you tell our readers what you're reading right now what's your current stage in your book journey Oh yes, um, there is the the amazing uh, three volumes um, published by my publisher. There's a shameless support there. Is <laughs> uh, from the realm of a dying sun. There's volumes one, two, and three, and it deals with the uh, the German forces on the Eastern Front. Uh, it's uh, they're written by the famed uh, Eastern Front military historian, um, former U.S. Army officer. Um, uh, Colonel Nash retired, Douglas E. Nash Sr. Um, his his un- level of understanding of military affairs and his his writing is very, very smooth. Uh, his the way he organizes the books, they, they move very, very quickly. Um, while he keeps track of the larger picture, he you know he doesn't go too too much into detail during the large time frames, like my book is is over, you know. S- how many days? 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd. His his uh, takes place, you know, the volume one takes place from July to November. So, you know, the the, the battles, but the battles are very expertly uh, described. He's the author of uh, many books on the Eastern Front and the German military. And he also uh, does a very, very good job of uh, describing the, the, the Red Army and its operations. So, yes, these are, are very, very good books. Uh, they're doing very, very well. Um, Americans, I believe, they're just snapping them up. Um, so, you know, I am um, very much in awe of uh, Douglas E. Nash Sr., uh, published by Casemate. His, his, uh, his book's title, again, From the Realm of a Dying Sun, it publishes three volumes. Um, you know, so it very much explains how the Germans attempted to stop the Red Army, the Red Steamroller, but but you know we're eventually, of course, overwhelmed and and defeated by by the end of the war. Thank you, thank you, Arthur. We again, thank you for being with us today. 
Oh, thank, thank you very much for having me. And uh, the, the, the title of the book, again, for, for me, in Bloody Verriers, the first SS Panzer Corps Defense of the Various Borgibus Ridges, Volume 1, Operations Goodwood in Atlantic, covering the, the largest battle, tank battle ever fought by the British Army and the German response to it. And um, yes, it's available uh, through Casemate on their website, as well as Amazon and all Barnes and Noble uh, locations uh, within the continental United States, and soon to be released on the fifteenth of uh, February, I believe, in the United Kingdom. And of course, when Volume Two is out, I, I hope to invite you to be with us again. Yes, yes, it's uh, been my pleasure to talk with you. This has been a very engaging uh, interview, and uh, it's uh, been a lot of fun. <laughs>